Well, good morning. Um, I guess where I might want to start. For most of us, there's certain kinds of books and stories that we love to read. We love autobiographies, don't we? Especially, I'm thinking of the one that um, General Schwarzkopf wrote, It Doesn't Take a Hero, where you almost get the memoirs of an individual who enters into a scenario where there's extended problems and challenges. And because of his faithfulness and staying at the task, he rallies this large group of individuals and they accomplish a task. And we love reading stories like that, don't we? I mean, there's a lot of memoirs and autobiographies of coaches out there that do the same kinds of things. They take a losing team. They, they refocus that team. And before you know it, they're just, they're on, they're doing it. And there's something in our heart that, that loves to see that either because we want to aspire to be that kind of a leader or we want to be involved in that kind of a team. Isn't that the truth? One of the reasons I love the book of Nehemiah is because it's the memoirs of a man who does that very thing. Comes into a very challenging situation, rallies a team, to accomplish something. And the, the difference of course. He doesn't do it on his own does he? Ultimately God does it through him. But we love to see God at work. Through committed faithful people. Who rally individuals around them. And accomplish tasks. So join with me if you would. In this whole study of Nehemiah. Now what I want to do today. Um, I, I'm going to kind of have you um, try to drink from a fire hose today. I'm going to throw a lot at you. Because what we're going to do is we're going to try to take the big picture of the whole book today. So I'm going to, I'm going to like dump a lot of stuff at you. All right. But relax. Uh, we're going to then systematically just work through one section after another. So I'm going to kind of give you the big picture today. And we'll kind of systematically work through it. If your eyes start glazing over, I'll close early. <laughs> nah, probably not. <laughs> All right. But we're going to kind of give you that big picture. So we, we have some slides. And I think I probably made up too many slides. I kind of got on a roll and, and so forth. So, so I'm not gonna, we're not going to actually look at all of them. But this is what I want to do. I want, you, I want you to kind of pull back. Because life has never lived in a vacuum. And one of the other things I found working with believers through the years, there's certain segments in scripture which they kind of get lost in. Like, do you ever get lost in the 12 minor prophets? If I say, turn in your Bible to Obadiah, uh, people go like, oh no. I think I'll just start at Malachi and start going back. And hope, hope I find it. You know what I mean? I mean, there, there's certain books and time periods that are, are kind of confusing to us. So I want to kind of set a historical context, not so much so that you go like, oh, this is driving me crazy. But just give you a context of where does Nehemiah fit and what God is doing in the story of Israel. Does that make sense? And then what we want to do is we want to step into the book itself and look at the literary content. And so what I put for you in the, in the bulletin there is a sheet 
On the one hand, it'll kind of just give you some major movements of the book. And on the back side, it has this chart that you don't have to memorize or anything like that, but you might want to hold on to because it, it just kind of gives you the, the, the context. So let's, let's put up the next slide here. Ah, um, if, if you think of the nation of Israel who had sinned against God Again and again and again, God had sent prophets and again and again. And eventually God had said, you guys are going into exile. The northern kingdom was taken into what we call Assyria. What we call Judah, the southern kingdom, was actually taken into captivity to Babylon itself. And, and, so, and, and actually even to Babylon, it was kind of three phases out. You know, you, you had the Daniel phase where you kind of just took some of the elite and Israel didn't get, get it. And then the Ezekiel and 10,000 artisans, Israel didn't get it. And then Nebuchadnezzar came in and he crushed Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. And they went into exile. And the walls were broken down and the temple was broken down. And everything was in demise. And that then, we'll go to the next slide. That then ushers in three movements back. To Jerusalem. So there's kind of three movements out. There's three movements back. Let's go to the next slide for just a second. I might have you pop back and forth here, Mark. Um, if you think of it like this, and you have this, so don't worry about writing this down. You have this in your bulletin there. It's, it's, it's all in there. If you think of it like this, Israel was in captivity then, the Bible tells us, for 70 years. And then God in his grace under Persia sends Zerubbabel back to rebuild the temple. We, we read about Zerubbabel in the book of Ezra. First half of the book. We also read in the book of Ezra of another individual, Ezra, the guy that writes the book. Make a lot of sense. Temple is rebuilt. Ezra comes back. The people are reformed. And it's not till 444 BC that Nehemiah actually comes back. Now, I, I want you to think about this for just a second. Look at when Zerubbabel comes back into the land. What's, what's the year that Zerubbabel comes back into the land? What's it say? 538. When does Nehemiah come back? Almost a hundred years later. That's a long time. Did you ever wonder where Esther fits in all this? She's in the gap in between Zerubbabel and Ezra. I mean, God is doing some incredible things behind the scenes so that king, the most powerful kings of the world, and on the upper section you have the Persian rulers, these are the guys that can do whatever they want. They're in full control. And they are doing these things not because they love the true and living God. They are making these decisions of letting people go back because it's politically expedient for them as an empire. It's good to have buffer states between Egypt and them. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And so, so but what, what the Persian kings don't realize is that God is God. And he is over that entire political. They're strategizing and allowing the Jews to do things. And God is behind the entire thing to accomplish his purposes. And so Zerubbabel comes back. Ezra comes back to reform the people. But the problem is, when the book of Nehemiah opens up, and the book ends, opens up this way, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, 
It opens up by, 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 by Nehemiah saying, I am going to share with you my memoirs. I'm going to tell you about what God did through me with God's peer, people over a very, very short period of time. And, and what we're going to be doing in our time together is we're not going to be looking at Ezra at all. We're just going to be focusing in on the book of Nehemiah. But what I want you to see is a couple things um, on this chart. You can see, for instance, do you see where Haggai and Zechariah and Esther and Malachi are placed? Do you, do you see that on the chart? You have it there before you. And once again, I don't expect you to master all this, but I hope you'll hold on to this through the series. And, and, and you may, we hope you'll read through the book of Nehemiah. I would love it if people even read some of the other books connected with Nehemiah. You want to read something that will set you up for Nehemiah 13? Read the book of Malachi. Because it's written right around that time. And you'll read that and you'll go to Nehemiah and you're like, holy mackerel. Yeah. Because it's all meant to fit, to fit together. So does that kind of make sense? That's a lot of history. But just kind of give you an overview there. What else do I have here? Oh, this, this next chart, I almost hesitated to put up, but it's flipped to it. Can we, is, is there one after this? Ah, you can barely read the thing. I know, I know. I, I've broken all the rules. You know, there's rules about how you're supposed to do PowerPoints, and this one violates them all. You're not supposed to put a lot of information on. But I started working on this thing, and I said, oh, i got to put one more thing in. And so don't worry about all the specifics. Here's what I want you to realize. Okay, here's just something to think about. When you read through the stories of scripture, when you read through any story, think of yourself as a cinematographer. And, and, and so, and I always forget this. I, you're supposed to go from left to right, but I should be going from your left to right, not my left to right. So let me start over here. Because I know I always do it backwards. So, so let me do it this way. So when I think, myse think of myself working through a book as a cinematographer, I'm always asking myself, okay, when are they doing panoramic views, moving along, and when do they zoom in? You know what I mean? Because when the Bible zooms in and gives you discussion between people, it's probably like really, really important. And then the Bible will sometimes pull back and it'll move along real fast, and then it zooms in again. You want to watch for those zoom-ins, don't you? And here's what I found to be really interesting about Nehemiah. Maybe you don't, but I do. The bulk of the book takes place over eight months. That's it. First chapter. Chapter one, going into chapter two. It's four months. Doesn't tell us anything about the guy's travel from, from where he was in Susa all the way over to Jerusalem, which would have taken two to three months. Can you imagine that? We hop on a plane and we're there. Just skips all that. But the bulk of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, all the way to chapter 13, just four months. Not a lot of time. So I'm thinking to myself, because one of the things we know from another passage in Nehemiah is he's actually governor there for 12 years. But you know what he does as a cinematographer? He does this. Nehemiah Cain zooms in. Bum, 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 Pops out. And I think like, what about those 12 years, man? And he talks about Nehemiah 13, something that happened after those 12 years. That's just always kind of interesting to me when I read, when I read the Bible and I read stories, I want to look at when do you panoramic and when do you zoom and why are you doing that? And you know what you'll find? 
So don't worry about all that other stuff. They're, they're just dates. What you'll find is God's messages in the zoom in. And the bulk of our time over the next two or three months, we will be focusing in on that zoom in in chapters 2 to 13. Does that make sense? And God's got some incredible things. What do they do in the midst of incredible opposition? In the midst of internal division? How do you accomplish a task that could never have any other explanation but God working through his people in the midst of opposition and internal division to accomplish something? Do we need that? Do we ever have any internal division? Sure. Every church does. Now, you don't rejoice over it. You try to deal with it. But it is kind of part of life. Matter of fact, you have to deal with it. Do we face any outward opposition? Yeah. It's all over the place. The enemy of our soul, the devil, is working constantly in structures of this world and in our minds in all kinds of ways to destroy us. Isn't that true? And we, I mean, Tim has said it, but, but, but it's much bigger. We're not concerned about working through Nehemiah. Just so at some point in the summer or early fall, we can be in a building and say, okay, that's it. That, that building is just part of something much larger God is doing with us. Isn't that true? So the building's important, absolutely. Is it what's most important? Absolutely not. The people of God are. And so what does it mean for God and his grace to use us and to work through us and to rally us so we work shoulder by shoulder, back to back, face to face, and we move together to accomplish not only a building, but furthering God's kingdom purposes here and abroad. Marie's going back to Cambodia. How do we help her? Because it's not just God's kingdom in Washington. It is. But it's much larger than that. So there are all kinds of ramifications from this book. D -d Does that make sense? Because what we don't want you to hear is, oh boy, James, Tim, and Doug, and the elders got together, and they're just trying to kind of rally us to make us give more money so we can get into this building, you know, soon kind of the thing. It's much broader than that. It's much broader than that. Will you be, will we be the people of God and do what he wants us to do in this place? I'm wandering from my notes. Okay, I'll try to get back on track. Okay. Um, what, I don't remember what my next picture is, so just show me and I'll make some fun, comment on it or just say, okay. Here is a model from a fellow by the name of Ritzmeyer who's done some incredible work in this area of probably what the temple and the city of Jerusalem would have looked like at the time of Nehemiah after everything was completed. Now, if, if you know anything about Herod's temple and complex later, everything's much bigger and broader and everything. So it's not real big. It's not real big. The temple is done. The walls and the gates are broken down. You know what it's like if gates are broken down in a city? You can't get anything done. Because people can just pour in whenever they want and do what they want. 
And so God was about, and do you remember how many days it took them to actually rebuild the wall? The walls were largely complete, but there was these breaches and, and the gates were 52 days. Can you imagine what that was like? Rallying people, getting everything together, and 52 days later, the walls are secure. It's an incredible thing what they got accomplished. So much so that one, Roman, one Jewish historian didn't think it could be done in 52 days, so he said it took two years. Because <laughs> it was just like, how can you do that in 52 days? It seemed like too much. All right, what else do I have? Okay, there's another shot. Next one. Probably can't see that one real good. It just try to give, gives you the landscape. Same kind of idea. And if you're going to try to read any of that stuff, forget it. Not going to happen. So let's move to the next one. That just shows you all the gates and places that are mentioned in Nehemiah. Now, Mark, if we can put this up, can we actually post this up on, on the web, web page? So if you actually want to go through these PowerPoints and have them and copy them, you can do it. So we'll, we'll just make that accessible. I'm not going through all this stuff. I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff in the book. It's a lot of gates to talk about. And the next one? Ah, we'll come to that. Let's go back to three. There. Okay. What I want to do in just about 10 minutes, maybe 15, is I just want to talk you through the book. Some of the major sections. And then we want to pull it all together into one proposition, what God is doing in the book, and then we'll be done. All right? So in your notes, you actually have these if you want to look at them. What, what you find in the book, at least in my thinking, I, I think you can kind of group the book into kind of these four units. You do it different ways, but this one kind of makes sense to me. Um, there is a problem when the book opens up. And, and, and we're, I'm going to talk more about this in two weeks because there's, there's all kinds of intricate things going on here. So I'm not going to get into it. Only to say this, Nehemiah is a cupbearer under the, the Persian king in Susa who has already stopped any rebuilding of the walls prior to this. And he gets people coming into town telling him the walls are broken down and there's all kinds of people coming in and just doing all kinds of terrible things in the city and it's, it's an awful time. And Nehemiah's got a problem. And Nehemiah, <laughs> Nehemiah knows how to pray. And chapter 1 and chapter 2a are all about prayer. And Nehemiah prays and God does something that only God can do. He turns the heart of a king. And Nehemiah comes back into the land and he gets there. And before he tells anybody what he's doing there, after he's traveled for two to three months, he comes back into the land. He spends three days just kind of checking things out. Riding around the wall before he tells anybody what he's going to do. And so there is this incredible problem. He takes it to God. God works through Nehemiah. He goes back. He prepares. He rallies. He motivates. He mobilizes. And coming out of that experience, the people said, let's do it. Yeah, but there's all kinds of problems. There's all kinds of enemies. There's all kinds of infiltrators. There's just all kinds of things. And Nehemiah says, God wants us to do this. Let's do it. And a significant number of Jews say, we're with you. 
and they rally together and they work hard. And over that 52 period day period, I mean, it's hard. Opposition is coming on like you can't imagine. The closer they get to finishing, the more intense it becomes. It's a very difficult time. And when you read this first section, what you find is God uses this man who is a leader, prepares the people, and there's just a whole group of people that say, whatever happens, God, we will do what you want us to do. And God does something only God can do. Don't you want God to do that with us? Our heart as leaders is that God will do something in Washington Township that is unexplainable at the human level. You can't say, well, you know, Tim Huffman, he's just like really good at this. And because of that, this happened. And Finkbeiner did this and Dave Raiders over here. And we got, you got women that are running these grief programs. And I just, just, it's just all, no, no, no. I want people to stand back and say, God, don't you? And when I read the book of Nehemiah, God can do through us what only God can do. And that is exciting to me. So in this first movement, going over in the beginning of chapter 7, they build a wall. But then there's a problem. You got a wall. You got some people living in it, but you don't have enough people living in the city. I mean, they need some urbanization here. Most of the people are still living outside of the city. They don't want to live inside. Now, you know what a lot of people would do at this point? So you've built the wall, but now you've got to fill the city. What a lot of people will do is they throw guilt on people. They say, look, we need people on the land. So we're going to pick right now. You, 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 you're filling the city. I don't, I don't care. You're in there, man. That's what a lot of people, a lot of groups would try to do. You know what Nehemiah does? He does none of that. God puts into his heart that the city needs to be filled. And in conjunction with that, Ezra says, can I read the scriptures to the people and can we explain it to them? And for, in chapter 8, for six hours, from sun up till 12 noon, they read the scripture. You think it gets long here sometimes. Can you imagine that? I mean, honestly, we'd start at 11. We're going to read and explain the scriptures till 5 o'clock. My guess is we lose a couple of you. <laughs> but that's what they do. And what you find in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, you find the word is central. And the way you get people to fill the city is not saying you will fill the city. You know what you do? You give them the word. You let the spirit of God work in their hearts. And what comes out of those chapters again and again is both sorrow over their sin and joy over the grace of God. Isn't that a good balance? What was it that John Newton said at the end of his life? There's two things I cannot forget. I am a great sinner and he is a great savior. Isn't that true? 
And so the word is given to the people of God and Ezra speaks and it's explained by the Levites and other leaders to the people and, and people are just weeping and crying and, and they say, okay, no, we understand the sorrow, but we should be people of joy because God is here with us. And it turns everything. So much so that in chapter nine, the leaders come to Nehemiah and Ezra and say, hey man, can we talk about the Bible again? And they go through it again. And then all the people confess to God their sin. And they, they, this is incredible prayer they give to God. And then out of that, they say, look, we are going to provide for the Levites and the stuff in the temple. And you know what? A tenth of us are going back into the city. And people say, yeah, and they do it. So how do you fill a city? Guilt or the word? You give them the word. The word saturates people, works in their hearts. That's why here at the chapel, we're committed to the exposition of the word. None of us are good enough to manipulate you, which is not that good. We probably try sometimes, but um, what we are committed to is if you give people the word, God will work in their hearts. And what God wants accomplished will get accomplished. And so Nehemiah has a problem with rebuilding the walls. He comes in, mobilizes. They do something that only God can do. But now you got to fill it. And Ezra comes on the scene and they pour the word into people. People are sorrowful and joyful all at the same time. And they're responding to what God is doing. And they're making commitments. And the next major movement of the book is they dedicate to God the walls that have been built. And it's a glorious time in chapter 12. It's just phenomenal. Matter of fact, it's really cool. When you get there, you'll see it. They, they, they actually, when they have the Levites coming in and singing, Carmelo, you'd really be interested in this. They actually bring them in on different sides of the walls. And so they're singing as they're coming in on the walls, singing until they actually meet together for, for the time of dedication. It's really cool. And as I thought about that, I, I know I say this often, but we are blessed with the worship team we have here, aren't we? Because in Nehemiah, it was about excellence, but not performance. It was about doing it faithfully to the glory of God. And you, week after week, come and you see men and women up here on stage who are not about, hey, who people think I'm great. I know their hearts. That's not the way it is. These, people, these men and women are committed to doing it with excellence. And you watch this, it's done with excellence and power and authority, and yet it's so saturated with the word. And, and, and they, they give all the glory back to God. Isn't that what we want to do? So man, I'm reading this book, I'm just saying like, wow, there's all kinds of stuff for our church here. Do, do, do you see it? If you're not connecting up with anything yet, either I'm like boring off the charts or you're not listening. <laughs> you know what I mean? God is at work. Probably, and this is another question I always ask myself about stories. Why do they end where they end? Do you ever wonder that like when you read the book of Jonah? 
don't know about you, but I'm always, I'm reading through the book of Jonah, and I'm saying when I get to the end. Okay, so what did Jonah do? Because it ends with a question by God. So I want to know, like, did Jonah say, sorry, God? I mean, doesn't tell us. And so I'm always asking myself, God, why are books ending? And there's all reasons for all that kind of stuff. I'm always asking myself, why does it end the way it ends? And here's what's fascinating. I've often wondered, why doesn't the book of Nehemiah end at the end of chapter 12? Because it would have been, it's a great story. Walls are broken. By God's grace, they're built. City needs to be filled. By God's word and his grace, it's filled. Dedicate the walls. Praise the Lord. But it doesn't end there. Nehemiah governs for 12 years. Goes back to work underneath the Persian king for, we don't know exactly how long, a year, two years, maybe three. Don't know exactly. Comes back in chapter 13 and all of the promises that the people had made in chapters 9, 10, have all been violated. And Nehemiah comes back to a situation where he feels like he's got to correct everything. And that the last word, the last sentence in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13, the last verse says this, the last sentence, I'm sorry. After he's done everything he can, he says, remember me with favor, my God. And the book ends. You know what I think? Nehemiah, they're your memoirs. Why didn't you end the book on a high? Why do you end the book on a low? Because that's what he does. All the work you did, and then you come back, and you feel like, what, what's the, ugh, here we go again. And ministry is that way sometimes. I get it. I and mean, that's, that's true. But I think there's something deeper going on. You know what I think it is? It's the same thing you find when you read the end of the book of Malachi. Where Malachi presents these same kinds of problems that the church, that, that, that they're having. And he gets to the end and he says, what we need is a Messiah. Who can turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And bring this whole thing together. Because as hard as we work under the old covenant, we, and we need to do everything we do. Okay, I get it. But as hard as we work, we still come up empty. And I think Nehemiah ends where it ends. And Malachi ends where it ends. So our hearts are hungering for a Messiah to come. To give us a new covenant. To transform us from the inside out. To give us of his spirit. And with all of our struggles and frustrations that we have. And we do. To work through us. In a way. That's frankly even more powerful. Than what could happen under the old covenant. And the book ends. I am a perennial optimist about God and what he can do. But it's not because of me. <laughs> Good grief. It's not because of us. It's because of him. 
The one who, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, has forgiven you of your sins. Connected you so to Jesus Christ that when God looks at you, you are sinless. Isn't that amazing? Even as I continue to sin. But I'm forgiven in Jesus. He's given us his spirit. So I'm a perennial optimist because of the living God who lives within us and among us who wants to transform us and further his purposes in ways that only he can do. Will we let him do that this year? We always have New Year's resolutions. Let your resolution be, God, I'm here. Do your work. I don't know where it is with you. Maybe it's getting involved. Maybe it's letting the word be more central in your life. Maybe it's looking to Messiah. Maybe you don't know Christ and you need to come to Jesus before you do anything. I don't know what it is. Will your heart be open to what God wants to do for you and you this year? And then the last slide. We get to that. That's it. God uses committed leadership to mobilize his people for his work. And to motivate his people through his word. Will you allow God to do his work in your life this year? And I don't know what that means specifically for you. I pray God will make that clear as we work through the book of Nehemiah. But will you do that? I'm going to close in a word of prayer. But I'm going to purposely wait a minute. Would you pray? Would you pray to God whatever he, his spirit, has impressed upon your heart? Will you make a commitment to him, whatever that might mean? And then I'll close this in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we, we have made probably countless New Year's resolutions over our lifetimes. And God, we know they will fall as quickly as the previous ones we've made apart from your enabling grace. So our prayer is that your spirit will do a deep-seated work in our lives. I don't know where you're touching everybody today. It may be that for the first time in their life, they will bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They will know the joy and the freedom and forgiveness that can only come by accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, it may be giving up that secret sin that they're holding on to. It keeps them from walking with you. That keeps them from being part of your work. It may be a lack of prayer. Maybe we've wandered too far from your word. We need to come back underneath it on a daily basis. Lord, I don't know what it is with each one of my brothers and sisters. But would you do that work in their lives? Would you encourage them that where sin abounds, grace abounds more? you help them to know the strength and the power of transformation from the inside out. 
And Lord, will you use us as your people in this place around the world in ways that we cannot even imagine as we sit here today? God, we crave for that. We don't want to just put in time. We want to invest it in the kingdom, Lord. Do your good work, we pray in Christ's name.